Welcome to Pod Academy. There are many, many ways of making a great podcast. But before we look at different examples, a couple of points. Firstly, audio is quite an intimate medium. You'll be in someone's ears, on their headphones as they walk along the street, or in their car or in their kitchen. It's their space and they really don't want to be hectored or lectured. An informal conversational style definitely works best. Secondly, audio gives great possibilities for light and shade, for creating different atmospheres, for getting your material over in different ways. So just go and play with it. Now we're starting with the single voice. And we've got two examples of how you can use one voice. One way is the scripted monologue. But first, let's hear an audio diary. Today is October the 9th. And I have a brand new baby boy, seven pounds. His name is Isaiah Seto. When I came home, it was it was a funny feeling. Just myself was walking in the house, but he really didn't care. He got so used to the house so fast, you know. Ooh, I smell something. What's that? Ooh. And how do I like my motherhood here? The funny thing about having a baby, especially a boy, is that he always pisses on me. Always. Every time I change him, is just always peeing on me. I don't know why. He's marking his territory like he said, this is mine. So, that's kind of cute. That's the diary format, which is perfect for telling personal, intimate stories. You record lots and lots of stuff and then edit it down dramatically. Next up is the scripted monologue. The advantage of this format is that you can prepare exactly what you want to say, you can do lots of takes, and you can add in sound effects. The paradoxically named Congo Free State was famously the setting for Joseph Conrad's The Heart of Darkness. The country has changed its name four times since then, but the title of Conrad's novella remains as apt a description of the DRC today as it was then. Sat astride the equator and covered in jungle, the country receives high rainfalls and has the highest frequency of thunderstorms in the world. Paradoxically named Congo Free State was famously the setting for Joseph Conrad's The Heart of Darkness. The country has changed its name four times since then, but the title of Conrad's novella remains as apt a description of the DRC today as it was then. Sat astride the equator and covered in jungle, the country receives high rainfalls and has the highest frequency of thunderstorms in the world. So, that's one voice. Now let's look at using two voices. Most commonly, that's in a straightforward interview. Gina Perry, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. Hey, look, I guess your book is in some ways a critique on science as much as it is a journey of discovery about these particular Milgram experiments. I'm really interested to find out how your views on the nature of science and scientific research changed over the writing of this book. Oh, well, that's a great question because it actually was the thing I least expected. I never thought I would was I was setting out to write a story about the sciences, the Milgram experiments, because I'd always assumed the scientific results were a given. I certainly didn't expect that I would question the scientific experiments, but as you've picked up, I obviously did. I'm a literary historian, and the kind of history I do is now print culture, book history, the history of reading, the books that people used to read and why. 
And the books that some people no longer read. Yeah, the books that people now have no idea about. The books that were read by my grandparents, your great-grandparents, my great-grandparents, that no one has even heard of. And you've called this forgotten fiction. Is this your term? No, it's not. A journalist friend of mine called that. Two voices can also be used a bit like a monologue, scripted, to build a narrative. The Freakonomics team often use this technique. Steve Levitt is my Freakonomics friend and co-author. He teaches at the University of Chicago. Hey, so Levitt, we're going to do something today that we've never done before on this program, which is beg. Uh, We've been putting out this podcast for, I think, almost four years all free, and now we're going to ask people for some support. What do you think of that idea? Is that nuts? Good luck. (laughs) It's hard to give things away for free and then ask for money later. So, Levitt, you've worked um, with some nonprofits trying to raise money. What's considered a good response rate? Let's say I send out a thousand mailers trying to raise money to help poor children uh, around the world. What's a good response rate? So, if you're sending those out cold to people who've never given you money before, I think Something like 1%, 10 out of 1,000 would be a really good number. But our audience is a little bit different, right? Anybody who's listening to this is not a cold call. So if we were to ask people to send money to make Freakonomics Radio and keep it free, um, what kind of response rate do you think we'd get here? You know, what's hard here is that the mechanism for getting people to send is more difficult. I would say once a day someone comes up to me and says hey I love the Freakonomics podcast I listen to it while I jog or while I work out in the gym I think if you could actually get someone in mid-jog or on the bike at the gym to to be able to press a button and send money directly to us I think you'd actually do okay the chance that someone's going to get done with their their run go back and take a shower and then log on to a computer and give you money I think that's really close to zero You can hear them batting back and forth, partly scripted, partly improvised, building the picture between them. And the music underneath adds momentum. And, of course, you can have a discussion or even a debate between two people. We've got a health service, but it is essentially, it's more and more about an illness service. What it does, it does really well, which is help when we're ill. And what I'm saying is we need to actively engage with creating health. The way we're organising our world is not creating health, it's bringing us illness. So would you say that in in disadvantaged areas, like where I'm coming from, Broadwater Farm, that one of our problems is actually a lack of looking at our mental well-being. We don't look at our mental well-being and faced with poverty and faced with almost seclusion for mainstream society, you live in a depressed state, a very negative mind state. And it, it's it's very odd because then that does affect the way I eat. And most of my friends eat chicken and chips, which we know is bad for you physically. Would you say that's that's what is that one of the major problems of, let's say, disadvantaged areas of where I'm coming from, like the, our state of mental health? I think the problem with a disadvantaged area is lack of money, lack of power, lack of employment. But there are other things as well that maybe we can do more about, which is our mental well-being. And I would argue that if you have strong mental well-being and you feel good about yourself, you're much more likely to get angry and get organised about the things, you know, the, the practical, economic and social things that are bringing, making you poor and disadvantaged. Looking at my mother's, my own mother's personal struggle and always remembering her telling me, look, like you've got everything in this country. And she does cleaning and is 
not very happy with it, but she's happy that she's doing something, which I always found quite peculiar. But I, I guess she has a different sense of ownership in Britain than me. She, she came here as an immigrant. I, I was born here. Now let's look at multiple voices. One possibility is the roundtable discussion. And if you're using that, always try to make the voices as different as possible. Male, female, young, old, different regional accents, because this helps people follow the threads. He gave quite a solid speech earlier in the week, Miliband, and he talked about the fact that the problem at the moment seems to be that the link between economic growth and living standards has been broken. And I think that's quite a strong argument for them. You know, they can't now shout, where's this recovery? We haven't got a recovery. It's been clobbered by the government. But they can say there is a recovery and people can't feel it. And that's because something's gone wrong in the way, in the share of, of, of growth that ordinary workers take home. And that's a kind of long term trend. But it, it will really ring true with ordinary people I think who will feel you know things might be looking better according to some of the data but it doesn't feel like that to me. I mean, Andrew one, one fan of this living wage thing is um, Boris Johnson isn't it? Well Boris certainly doesn't believe in, in grinding the faces of the poor he's a Merry England Conservative and he wants everyone to have a good time and he knows you can't if you are desperately hard up so I think, I think a lot of Conservatives actually agree that there is this problem visible in America as well of people whose incomes have, have actually shrunk and who have no progression within whatever work it is that they're doing, which is necessary work, but is very, very badly paid. It is a, it is a serious problem, and I think Miliband deserves some credit for, for trying to, to think of an answer. But Heather, what would you say to the idea that there, that there isn't really such a thing as the cost of living is an issue that's distinct from the economy. I mean, in the end, it's how much money the economy is churning out and our, our ability to, to Well, the but the, the cost of living is a way of putting it across to ordinary people. Now, that, that was a roundtable discussion, but multiple voices are also at the heart of feature packages where you build up a narrative using clips from several different interviews. Does it really rob primary school children of their innocence to introduce them to the idea that some people fall in love with members of the same sex? Furthermore, might it even be important to do so? We'll be speaking to sex education expert Fred Kayser. I think we ought to start talking about uh, homosexuality, by certainly by age five. And talking to members of Cambridge's LGBT community about their experiences discussing their sexuality with small children. You said, well, if you love her, what does it matter? And I was like, well, that's such insight for an eight-year-old. We'll also be chatting to teachers at St Matthew's Primary School about why they teach children about homosexuality. If you missed a goal, you were called gay. When there were girls arguing, it was you're a lesbian, your mum's a lesbian. It was used as a term of abuse constantly. I don't hear it anymore at all. And hearing how Iona, aged five, gets on with a children's book featuring gay characters. Wherever Roy went, Silo went too. Is Silo the girl? No, they're both boys. We'll also be hearing from those who oppose the idea, including Simon Darby from the BNP. We just expect that our kids are not indoctrinated with homosexual propaganda. But first, how has this issue become so controversial? Boy George's No Clause 28. Packages like that often have a narrator joining the threads, helping you navigate your way through. But that's by no means always necessary. In fact, some people say the holy grail of feature-making is not to have a narrator at all, but rather to use the clips so cleverly that we can all follow the story. Multiple voices can also be used in dramatisation. I'm Roman Mars. Welcome to the Make It So Index of Interaction Design. Friends, our producer Sam Greenspan has seen the colour of the future. I have seen it. You have seen it. We all know that the colour of the future 
is blue. Lesson one, future screens are mostly blue. When science fiction becomes science fact, the team colors have already been chosen. Pretty much science fiction is blue. 1968, denim blue. 1976, Egyptian blue. 1979, ultramarine. 1980, powder blue. Blue, it is inhuman, future-looking, kind of mystical. That's Chris Nossel, sci-fi aficionado. There's not a lot of blue in nature, right? There's not a lot of blue food. So I think there is something fundamentally inhuman about that color. Or unnatural. Yeah, yeah, and that really fits the technologies of the future world. Um, I, As contrast. Yeah. 1982, royal blue. 1983, Prussian blue. 1986, mariner blue. 1990. So that's it. Several different examples demonstrating, hopefully, how flexible and how creative you can be with audio. They've just started to ring now, and they started off ringing all 12 bells from the highest note to the lowest. 